Blog Talk Radio. The B-I-B-L-E-A, that's the book for me. The B-I-B-L-E-A, that's the book for me. sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John that unpacks 15 Greek words in Scripture that explain a stunning paradox, how a God of perfect justice can show mercy to sinners who deserve only punishment. Request your free booklet titled 15 Words of Hope by writing to hope at gty.org. That's hope at gty.org. 
This offer is good in North America and Europe through June 2023. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur. Now, I know it's Christmas season, but next Sunday is actually Christmas Day, so I have saved a Christmas message for next Sunday. And uh, we'll take a look at the birth of Christ in the Scripture next, next week. But today, I want to go back to our series in Ephesians. And uh, it's a very uh, significant day, kind of a monumental day, because this will be the last message. I had an objective to try to finish Ephesians before the end of the year. And in order to do that, I need to take you to that sixth chapter one more time this morning. Paul closes this epistle with final words starting in verse 18, Ephesians 6, 18 through verse 24. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times, in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. But that you also may know about my circumstances, how I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us, that he may comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. There is a final command here in this text as Paul closes this monumental epistle. And it comes in verse 18 in the words, pray at all times. Pray at all times. That is his final injunction, his final command to us. It's reminiscent of Pilgrim's Progress. Some of you will remember when you read Pilgrim's Progress, Christian received his armor, and he was given a weapon called all prayer. That weapon was essential to him. With that weapon, he could stand strong when everything else seemed to fail. With that weapon of all prayer, he could prevail, Bunyan says, against the fiends which beset him in the valley of the shadow. When he poured out his soul in prayer, they went back and left him alone. Our Lord Jesus urges that men ought always to pray and not to faint or not to grow weary. Luke 18.1, men ought always to pray. And that is exactly what Paul is telling us here. This is the climax of the entire epistle. And it is placed here purposely as the pinnacle. 
the whole letter ends in a plea for prayer. You could say it begins in the heights of the heavenlies and it ends on its knees. It is very crucial that we understand the role that prayer plays in our sanctification and in our ministry. Now let me help you to understand how strategically Paul places this command. Starting in chapter 1 with verse 3, we were instructed that we have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. That is that we have been given everything we need. Absolutely everything. To put it in Peter's words, we have all things that pertain to life and godliness. To put it in Paul's words to the Colossians, in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily in Christ, and you are complete in Him. We have all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, in the spiritual realm. We have them by virtue of being in Christ. And the spiritual privileges were laid out with some detail in the first couple of chapters, even through chapter 3. Let me just remind you of some of the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies that belong to believers. First of all, we are comprehensively blessed because we are loved and have been loved from before the foundation of the world and therefore we're predestined to the eternal end of our glory. We are forgiven, Paul says in chapter 1. We are redeemed. We are granted wisdom and insight and understanding into the very realm of divine truth which is not available to unredeemed minds. We have been made rich, rich in all that God can provide for us. We are secure, guaranteed to be held by the Father and the Son to eternal glory by the work of the Holy Spirit who is our security. Chapter 2, we find out that though we were dead, we are now alive. And we have a new life that is totally transformed. We are objects of eternal grace. We have been made... God's masterpiece created unto good works. We are one with other believers in one body, Jew and Gentile, and every other distinction is erased. We are part of God's family. We are one family. We are His sons and daughters. We are the habitation of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. And all of this produces the reality that wraps up the opening three chapters that we're able to do exceeding abundantly above all we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. Staggering realities. And all of those belong to all Christians. We are fully equipped for sanctification and effective ministry and to give God glory. Those are just some of the features in those opening three chapters. But with all of that privilege and all of that power, 
we are also called to obedience, to live consistently with that identity. And so in chapter 4, we enter into the part of this epistle that calls on us to behave in a manner worthy of such spiritual privilege. We are reminded in chapter 4 that we possess the Spirit of God, that we are members of the body of Christ, that we are being perfected, being matured, so that we can advance the gospel, speak the truth in love, and see the gospel change the world. We have been given gifts and gifted men to perfect us to do the work of the ministry. We have Christ to teach us and instruct us how to live our lives, how to walk. We are to walk worthy. We are to walk in love. We are to walk in light. We are to walk in wisdom. We are to walk in truth. We are to walk in the indwelling Holy Spirit and know His fullness. We have all that we need for the fulfillment of every human relationship. We have everything we need to have great marriages that honor Christ and wonderful families that do the same, and even relationships outside the family. And that takes us all the way through to chapter 6, verse 9. And in verse 10, we're introduced to the armor that the Lord has given us because as His children and members of His kingdom, we are going to be in lifelong conflict with the devil. And we have been equipped to deal with Him if we take on the full armor of God, verse 11 says, we will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. We saw that armor last time, loins girded with truth, truthfulness, the breastplate of righteousness, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which which is the Word of God. So we have an amazing arsenal of protection as well as a weapon in the sword. This is a presentation of, of spiritual adequacy. There's nothing left out. There's nothing missing. What an exalted reality, an exalted identity and position. We lack absolutely nothing. Again, Colossians 2.10, you are complete in Him. But it is, it is at this point precisely that arises a potentially destructive problem. And that would be spiritual overconfidence. I think Paul anticipates that. He has literally unloaded on us massive, massive store of realities that define our spiritual blessing. And he knows that if we are confident in those things and perhaps self-confident, we're in danger of being overconfident. In 1 Corinthians 10, 12, you remember he said, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. One might conclude by the time one arrives at Ephesians 6, 17, that we stand. We have everything we need. And you could sort of wind up in a kind of 
practical atheism where you know God, you know about God, you believe the Word of God, you understand all the resources that are yours, and you know you're adequate for everything that God desires through your life, and so maybe you even have no particular need for a constant flow of communication with God since He's given you so much. Paul interrupts that kind of thinking fast in verse 18. Pray at all times. Even with all that you have, even with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, even with power to do beyond what you can ask or think, pray at all times. And somebody might say, well, what's to pray for? Well, there are a lot of things you don't have to pray for. You don't have to pray for what is given to you. But there are a lot of other things that you must pray for. Paul dismisses any notion that you, with all this spiritual adequacy, could just march out on your own triumphantly. That's very dangerous. You have something to pray for. What? Everything. Everything. The application and expression and enjoyment and power that flows from all these resources depends upon an unending communion with God. Constant connection with Him. It is really a latent danger, and I mean a real danger, that Christians who have a knowledge of doctrine and an understanding, effective understanding of their resources and spiritual principles can become satisfied so that heart-rending, passionate, constant prayer has no place or very little place. And that is sin. So Paul does what he has to do in closing this letter. He brings it to a crescendo. This is where the music peaks, as it did this morning, in the grandiose ending to some of those songs that you heard. And it ends in a call to prayer, the key to absolutely everything. Prayer is the Christian's breath. It's easy to breathe because God has designed you so that air has pressure. That pressure is exerted against your lungs. It's easier to breathe than not to breathe. If you hold your breath, that's, that's challenging. That's hard. You can't do that for very long because pressured air wants to enter your lungs. It seeks to enter. It's more difficult to hold your breath than it is to breathe by far, obviously. The same is true with prayer. You shouldn't be having to work to pray. It should be the most natural expression of your spiritual lungs to commune with God, to, to let Him in to every thought and every conversation, everything in your life. 
It is really the spiritual thing to do, to breathe in the sense that you're communing with God. If you're not regularly and faithfully in prayer, you're struggling against your own spiritual nature. You're trying to hold your spiritual breath, and that will stop the power. And the cause for prayerlessness is always the same. It's sin. It's selfishness. So Paul calls us to sum up everything to prayer. And there are just two thoughts he has here. One, the general instruction in verse 18, and then the specific illustration in verses 19 to 22, and then a benediction. Just two points, the general introduction and the specific illustration. And that's, that's how you teach. You give a general principle, and then you illustrate it. You give the exhortation, and then the example, and that's how Paul ends his letter. Let's look at the general instruction in verse 18. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. One word is there four times. What is it? All. Four times in that short sentence, or not even a complete sentence. All prayer, all times, all perseverance and petition for all saints. All, 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 all. This is comprehensive. This is to say that prayer is a part of everything. Everything. Well, let's break it down. First of all, the frequency of prayer. Pray at all times. That's the frequency. At all times. On every occasion. Every time. Through all of life. Jesus said in Luke 21.36, pray always. The apostles um, in the church in Acts 6 said you need some people to help serve the widows because we must give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the Word. It was said about Cornelius that he was a devout man, Acts 10, and prayed to God always. In Romans 12:12, 12, 12, Paul said, continue diligently in prayer. Colossians 4:2, continue in prayer. Philippians 4, 6, in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 sums it up, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. In 2 Timothy 1, 3, Paul said, without ceasing, I have remembered you in my prayers night and day. Amazing. He says that to Timothy. Without ceasing, I have prayed for you. Now that's how we ought to pray. It is an open conversation that goes on all the time. I have walked with the Lord all these many years. I have found the sweetness of that conversation. 
all of life is a constant communion with God. Everything that happens to me, around me, everything that I see and observe pushes me Godward, opens my mind and my heart to Him. When there is something wonderful that happens, something good, some blessing, it's so easy to say thank you. I find myself doing that virtually all the time. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. That's an open conversation. I'm not necessarily trying to find flowery words. We are to give thanks in everything. This is the will of God for us, First Thessalonians 5 says. But it's not as if I have to give God a long speech about every single thing I'm thankful for. He knows my heart. He knows what I'm thankful for. But I am to offer that thanks to Him. So when I see the blessings of life, the challenges of life that strengthen me and strengthen those around me, when I see the good, the good news doing its work in people's lives, when I see righteousness and godliness, when I see flourishing ministry and faithfulness, and I see it all the time, every day of my life, my heart just says, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. It just initially goes back to the communion and the conversation that's always open between me and the Lord. You know you have a very close friend when you can be separated for a long time and come back together and pick up the conversation exactly where it left off. But it never leaves off with God because He never forsakes you. That's praying at all times. No waking moment that you're not looking at the world through a God consciousness. When you see evil, what's your initial response? You ask Him to make it right. And if it's in your own life, you ask Him to forgive you. And you confess that. You, you, you don't make a truth, truce with evil. You don't become tolerant of sin and what's wrong in the world. You should be grieved. You should be heartbroken when God's name is dishonored. Zeal for His house should eat you up. The reproaches that fall on Him should fall on you. You, you should feel the pain when God is dishonored and cry out to God to be, to be glorified, to bring an end to unrighteousness and transgression. And when you see difficulty and challenges and trouble, before you race to some solution of your own, you, you want to connect with heaven and say, Lord, I'm not sure where this is going, what the outcome is going to be, but I put it in Your hands casting all my care on You. So all of life, good, bad, and indifferent, becomes part of this ongoing conversation with the Lord. So that it never really breaks off. It's just the way you look at the world. The psalmist put it this way, I've set the Lord always before me. In other words, he saw everything through the lens of the mind and heart of God. That's how you have to see everything. And out of that comes your thankfulness, and out of that comes your confession, and out of that comes your supplication. 
There should be no waking moment when that isn't the immediate connection that you make. Only selfish, self-centered people don't pray continually. Those centered on God and His divine purpose continually pray. And they pray in the frame of John 14, 13, and 14. Whatever you ask in My name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. In other words, you're praying with the objective of the glory of God. And then the next verse says, if you ask in His name, He'll... He'll answer. Why? To put His glory on display. That's another critical part of prayer. God, whatever glorifies You, I want Your glory. Like the martyrs in the book of Revelation who say, how long, O Lord, how long are You going to allow this dishonor and blasphemy of Your name? Now, Paul says in verse 18, pray at all times. And he uses a term here that just means don't stop. Just keep it up. Keep it going forward, steadfast, constant, enduring, strong, earnest, and persistent prayer. There's a couple of good illustrations of that in the Gospel of Luke. I'll show you two of them. The first one's in the 18th chapter of Luke. This is a story you're familiar with, verse 1. Jesus was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray. There it is again. Jesus is trying to teach them to pray all the time. And so in order to get the lesson across, He tells them a parable that they should pray and not lose heart. Here's the parable. In a certain city, there was a judge who didn't fear God and and didn't respect man. That's kind of bad if you're the judge. I mean, that's 0 for 2. But that's the nature of this fabricated judge that our Lord invents in the story. A judge who didn't fear God and didn't respect man. There would be little hope of getting justice out of that judge. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. She couldn't get justice for some offense. For a while, he was unwilling. But afterward, he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I'll give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. That is a bad judge who is not motivated by justice or any sense of obligation and responsibility to justice, but just does what he does to get rid of an irritating woman. But if an unjust judge will give a woman justice because he's irritated, what would the Lord do for those he loves? And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for His elect who cry to Him day and night? And will He delay long over them? I tell you that He will bring about justice for them quickly. Yeah, because He loves us. He hears and responds to our prayers. Back in the 11th chapter of Luke, 
another familiar story, again about prayer in verse 5. Jesus had um, just given the prayer. And in verse 5 of Luke 11, He said to them, His disciples, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. That's a bad time to go to your friend if you want him to be your friend in the future. But he goes in at midnight and wants three loaves. Not for himself, he says, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside... His friend answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Again, here you have someone who is reluctant to provide what someone needs. Verse 8, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. If the guy just stays there and keeps pounding on the door, eventually he's going to get out of bed and give him what he needs just so he can get some sleep. Verse 9, So I say to you, here's the difference between that kind of friend and me. I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Did you know that's a promise from the Lord? In James it says, you have not because you what? You ask not. Prayer is constant God consciousness. But it's also constantly a struggle. It's a struggle. You're, you're laying hold of God and your heart is pressed to have Him meet your need. It's not flippant. It's not superficial. I know it can be intense when it relates to you. Somebody you love has cancer. Somebody you love is dying talked to a father a couple of days ago whose son committed suicide, dove off a cliff. You cry out to God in a situation like that and ask for some kind of strength to survive when it's personal. But what about when it's somebody else? It's so easy for us to pray intensely even to the point of fasting regarding issues that relate to us, but we can easily treat other people's extreme issues with a measure of indifference. Be reminded that if you ask, you will receive. That leads to a second aspect of prayer. The first one is the frequency at all times. Second, the variety. The verse begins with all prayer and petition. All the time... All prayer and petition. What does that mean? Just that. All prayer. Public, private, verbal, silent, loud cries, 
quiet whispers, deliberate, spontaneous requests, thanks, confession, humiliation, praise, kneeling, standing, lifting up your holy hands, lying down, all kinds of prayer, every kinds of prayer, kind of prayer, with every emotion, every attitude, every thought, every circumstance. Prayer is prosercate, just general conversation with God. Supplication or petition is a special definitive prayer. So yes, you pray generally, but you focus in on those very special requests specifically. The general pattern of your life is you pray all the time in all kinds of prayer. First Timothy 2.8, Paul says, I, I will that men pray everywhere, all the time, everywhere. It's just a marvelous perspective. The kind of living just continually keeps you in communion with the Lord. It's, it's, a, it's a variety of forms of communication. All those things that I stated, every emotion, every circumstance, every experience. We're not talking about prayer books. We're not talking about vain repetition. We're not talking about special times of prayer. We're talking about a way of life. I remember when I was in school years ago, a man gave a message uh, and he said you should pray in the morning because he went through the Old Testament and pointed to all the passages where it says they rose up early in the morning and prayed. And that's fine. He concluded that that's the time we ought to pray. It struck me that Psalm 55:17 says, evening and morning and at noon will I pray. Luke 6.12 says of Jesus, He continued all night in prayer to God. Even 1 Timothy 5.5 says godly widows are seen praying night and day. All the time, in all circumstances, prayer is breathing. It's just living your Christian life in communion with God. So the frequency of prayer, pray at all times. The variety of prayer, all prayer, all petition. Thirdly, the manner of prayer. And for that, you see a phrase there, be on the alert. With this in view, be on the alert. Some translations say, watching in other words, it's not enough to just be generic. It's a kind of picture of, I think, what Peter meant when he said in 1 Peter 4, 7, watch and pray. And he got that directly from Jesus in Mark 14, watch and pray. Take a look around you and pray specifically. I remember one of my children was very young. We would go from bed to bed at night and pray with them before they went to sleep. And one of the kids would, was tired, and this was typical. God bless the whole wide world. Amen. <laughs> so I thought, well, that's a little too general. 
because you're never going to know whether God answered your prayer. So there was some instruction about making your prayer more specific, and that's exactly what this is talking about. Watch. Be alert. Take on the circumstances and the issues. If your prayers are nothing but generic, it's a sign of indifference and an indication of selfishness. There are people who pray hard, but it's most of the time for something that they're going through or someone very close to them is going through. And they can get intense to the point of fasting. We can be concerned for our own issues. The question is, can we be that concerned for the issues of others? What a commentary on our self-centeredness. Our prayers should be constant, intense, specific, because we're watching and we're seeing things and we're discerning realities and they need to be brought before the throne of God. And do it with all perseverance, it says. All perseverance. Staying on course. Uh, an intense verb. Stay in there. It's, it's a verb that kind of conveys toughness, strength, steadfastness. It's a consuming effort. It reminds me of Epaphras, Colossians 4.12. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greeting, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him, he has a deep concern for you. That, that's, that's rare. This is a man, the true slave of Christ, always laboring, in other words, struggling, wrestling earnestly in prayer for the sanctification of the people in his church because he has such a deep concern for them. What would happen to a church if everybody prayed like that for each other? All prayers are to be the result of watching. Do you know what's going on? Do you know the needs around you? The frequency of prayer, all time. The variety of prayer, all kinds of prayer. The manner of prayer, alert and persevering. It's a struggle. You stay with it. knowing that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, and that if you ask, you'll receive. The indirect objects of prayer also. The indirect objects, down in verse 18, all the saints. That's the fourth all, all the saints. The direct object is God. You're always praying to God for God's glory. Always to God for God's glory. That's back to John 14, 13. 
that the Father will put himself on display and be glorified is the objective of your prayers. Lord, glorify yourself. Put your glory on display. Show your power. Show your grace. Show your kindness. Show your mercy. That's the direct object of prayer. But the indirect is the saints. Samuel said to Israel, 1 Samuel 12, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. You sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for someone. How, how, how could that be a sin? You mean that my prayers actually fit into what God is doing so that not to pray is sinful because of its importance? Christian is not only to think of his own conflict, but watchfully looks at everything around him and prays for everybody else. And all for the glory of God. By the way, nowhere does the Scripture say to pray for yourself. That's going to happen, and that's okay. But the needful thing is to pray for others. Just like we use our spiritual gifts for others, our prayers ought to be on behalf of others, and they ought to be specific, watchful prayers. That's what Jesus does. He intercedes for us. He knows our weakness. He knows our infirmities. He knows our failures. And He intercedes for us. There's one other qualification in this verse. And it's a very important one. Pray at all times in the Spirit. In the Spirit. Jude 20 has a similar phrase, praying in the Spirit. What does that mean? Consistent with the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 says the Spirit knows how to pray for, because, how to pray because He prays according to the will of God. Romans 8, 26 to 28. So the praying in the Spirit means lining up with what the Spirit is praying for, which is consistent with the name of Christ and the will of God. If you say, I want to pray according to the will of God, or if you say, I want to pray in the name of Christ, that means consistent with who He is and His purpose. Or if you say, I want to pray in the Holy Spirit, you're saying the same thing. You're bowing your knee to divine purpose and divine intention and divine will. There should be one will in your prayer life. Your will be done in heaven as it is in earth. Not my will, but yours, Jesus prayed, didn't He? There should be one will in praying. If you pray in the will of the Father, or if you pray in the name of Christ, or if you pray in the Holy Spirit, you're praying with that one will. You may not always know it, but that's what you desire. You don't want something that is not the will of God. You don't want something that is not going to glorify Christ and is not going to be in the path of the flow of the work of the Spirit. So you submit yourself to that divine will. The Holy Spirit in Zechariah 12.10 is called the Spirit of Supplication. 
And the Spirit, according to Romans 8, helps us with our prayers because we don't know how to pray. So the Spirit makes groanings, groanings which cannot be uttered, interceding on our behalf from within us. This is an amazing thing. The Spirit in us intercedes for us with groanings which cannot be uttered, and they're always consistent with the will of God. Christ in us cries out, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit cries out, Father, do your will. And so Spirit-filled, Spirit-led prayer is what we want to pray. So there's a large uh, stretch of prayer in one very short verse. We cover everything, and the, the economy of language here is, is remarkable. And that's the general instruction. Pray all the time with all prayer, with all perseverance for all saints in the Spirit. That's how you live your life. Frequency, variety, manner, indirect objects, all in the power of the Spirit, all working toward God's glory and the believer's joy. Then he closes with a specific illustration. This is good. I'm, I, I, I love this one because it's very applicable to me. Verse 19. So let me give you an illustration, Paul says. I've just told you in the general sense how to pray. Let me give you an illustration. Here's where you start. Pray on my behalf. Pray for me. That utterance, and here's the specifics, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Now, do you think Paul felt prayer was important? Do you imagine that Paul just knew he was so gifted at what he did and the Spirit was so on him when he did it that he was, he was independent. Wherever he went, he had the power, the resources, the heavenly blessings. He had the features of sanctification that were granted to him in Christ. And he was sufficient in himself. No. He says, my first request, and he's talking as a prisoner in Rome, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel of which I am an ambassador in chains as a prisoner, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Is that amazing? We think of Paul as this bold, dynamic, unflappable, fierce proclaimer of truth when he feared his own cowardice, when he feared his own weakness if people didn't pray. He was looking at the weakness of his own flesh. Would he be bold enough 
to open his mouth and make known the mystery of the gospel, mystery meaning what had been hidden to generations past and is now revealed in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, would he be bold, even as a prisoner in chains, most ambassadors have political diplomatic immunity. He was an ambassador who was in chains. But he desired so much to be bold. But there were some challenges in being bold when you're already a prisoner. So pray for me that I will speak as I ought to speak. There's so much honesty there. This is Paul. Why do you need somebody's prayers? In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2, Paul wrote this, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Then he said this, Praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the Word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Is that amazing? Pray for my clarity. Pray for my boldness. Pray for my faithfulness. Pray for the preacher. Pray for the preacher. He, he knew his theology. He had his armor. But he feared his own humanity. Pray for the preacher. Good place to start. If I can suggest that, if I can borrow Paul's words, pray for this preacher. Pray for... All the preachers around here, the elders, teachers, pray for us all to be courageous and bold and fearless and compassionate and loving. Pray for every ministry that we have. And Paul wants them to know the details. So he says in verse 21, I'm sending Tychicus, who's mentioned five times in the New Testament, Beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, why are you sending him? Because he's bringing the letter. He's delivering Ephesians. But I want you to know about my circumstances, how I'm doing. So he'll make everything known to you. Verse 22, I've sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts. I want you to know what's going on in my life because I need your prayers. And I want you to know the positives so you can be comforted and not worry about me. And I want you to know the challenges that face my, my human flesh so that you can pray for my boldness and courage. Listen, if he needs prayer, anybody here say, I don't need it? If the Apostle Paul needed it, depended on it, so he ends in that really incredible expression of his own recognition of weakness. And if he needed prayer, we need it more. 
And that's how he ends with a prayer request. This is the guy who taught all that theology and wrote 13 epistles in the New Testament, who understood everything perfectly because he received the inspired revelation, who was tested and proven and refined every way possible, who met every enemy and every friend triumphantly. And he's pleading for people to pray for him. I understand that. That's the, that's the greatest gift you could ever give the preacher. And with that, he signs off with a beautiful benediction. Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. I don't particularly like to explain benedictions like that. I think they're better to be memorized than explained. Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Pronounces a blessing on the church. That anticipates that they're going to respond to this epistle favorably, right? Right. He's pronouncing a blessing, peace, love, faith, grace, to all of you as you apply these magnificent truths. Our Father, we are so grateful for the richness of this closing section of Ephesians. It's just a thrilling thing to, to consider it in our minds. But Lord, may it never stop there. May it find its way into our lives. May we be faithful in prayer for each other. Watchful prayer. Praying all the time with all kinds of prayer. With all endurance, perseverance for all saints in the Spirit. And we can start with those who are over us in the Lord, whose faith we follow, for their courage and boldness and clarity and power and usefulness. Because that is such a blessing to your church. Give us a fresh, new desire to keep the conversation with you going all the time. May we look at the world through your eyes and respond to everything by prayer. What a privilege it is for us to be able to commune with you Anywhere, anytime, any place, 
with anything that's on our hearts. How do we not take advantage of the promise? Ask and you will receive. Knock and it will open. Seek and you will find. Lord, we ask that you would be always the objective, the direct objective of our prayer. Whatever that prayer might be, that you would be glorified, that the Father would be glorified in the Son, as John's Gospel puts it. And maybe, Lord, as we move forward, if we are faithful, You've done so many wondrous things, so many wonderful things, so many incredible things here. Maybe we haven't even seen what you would do if we were praying always. So may that be an objective, and may you prompt our hearts to be faithful, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible Teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page as Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O.com. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as truth, the letter B, then told radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B. T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is truth, the letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M smilesandstuff.com So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Just the right balance. This is Ken Ham and we've launched a video streaming platform, Answers TV. God's design for our bodies is marvelous. Think about your skeletal system. 
206 bones keep your organs in place, anchor your muscles, and provide support for walking. Bones are made of two very different substances, a hard crystal material mixed with tough collagen. Now the crystal material makes up 70% of the bone's dry weight. Collagen makes up the rest. If your bones were just the crystal material, they would shatter. And too much collagen and they'd be too rubbery to be useful. But they're the perfect mix of both. Strong but elastic enough to adapt to the stresses we put on them. There's so much more to discover about the wonders of God's creation when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Yeah, he made us all, yo. Yeah, God made us all, yo. God made me and you. Sing, children. No, we He did it to show off his glory and worth. In Genesis 1, what we see in each verse is God made a world that is truly diverse. From icebergs to insects, tornadoes to trees. From lions to lizards, flamingos to fleas. Each in their own way, they're God, they are praising. Their differences cry out. God is amazing. But the crown jewel of the work of his hands are made in his image, both woman and man. We're not accidents, we are part of his plan. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. is different, unique in their frame. God made them all, each kind and each sport. He made some people tall and some people short. Dark skin, light skin, and all in between. In each color and shade, his beauty is seen. The Lord knows the number of hairs on your head. Whether brown or black, whether blonde, gray or red. What some call ethnicity and others call race. We should celebrate as a gift of God's grace. You're wonderfully made from your feet to your face. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. We see what God's love is about There's no type of person that Jesus left out Because Jesus died and rose from the grave All those who trust in the Lord will be saved In the book of Revelation, chapter number 7 The church from all times is gathered in heaven Each tribe and people, language and nation All thanking God for the gift of salvation Together, forever, with saints of all kinds Through each the glory of the Lord's gonna shine This is exactly what God has designed When God made me and you, let's go no, we all uh. Yeah. 
For all the value, all our loss All that's greatly for the cross Jesus died, rose, and paid the cost God made me and you Different colors and different shades All fearfully and wonderfully made Through each the glory of God displayed God made me and you For all of our you, all our loss All of great need for the cross Jesus died, rose, and paid the cross Do I pray for miraculous healing for my chronic pain? You bet I do. Am I expecting it? Well, if God wills, yes. Whatever you want, Jesus, I pray. If it would give you more glory and advance your gospel more quickly, I am all for it. That's the goal for whatever we ask of God, right? To submit to God and obey his word, knowing full well that if I had everything else in life and lacked that, I'd have nothing. It's all about Jesus getting the greatest glory, whether I jump up out of this wheelchair pain-free or I continue to smile in my wheelchair, knowing that in my pain I've got quite a few lessons to learn, a character to be honed, other wounded people to identify with, a hurting world to reach with the gospel, and a suffering Savior with whom I can enjoy greater intimacy. And that's as good a miracle as it comes. Living Bone. This is Ken Ham, CEO of Answers in Genesis, Ark Encounter, and the Creation Museum. Most people think their bones don't change, but bones adapt throughout your life. Bone maker cells supply new building material and bone breaker cells destroy old material. In healthy adults, this happens in perfect harmony. There's just the right amount of new bone forming and just the right amount of old bone being removed. The bone maker cells create a matrix of bone material, including collagen. This attracts minerals to form hard bone. When it's time for a repair, the bone breakers secrete an acid to break down the minerals, as well as enzymes to dissolve the collagen. It's a complex system, and it points to the one who designed it all, our Creator God. God's creation is filled with wonders. Discover more of them when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe for daily email insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com.
often when we talk about God to those who have Down syndrome or are developmentally delayed, we'll say, you're made in the image of God. And that's important. Every young person with an intellectual disability should know they are made in God's image. After all, we want them to feel good about how God made them. But although being an image bearer is good news, it's not good enough. John Piper says that, quote, every human is made in the image of God, which means that God's enemies are created in his image. Drug dealers, pedophiles. Being in the image of God is not a hopeful condition. It's why when we offer Christ, we invite people to be not the created image of God, but the recreated child of God, a new creation in Christ. And that's the message we share at Johnny and Friends. Like she said, that's Johnny and Friends. That's uh, to see that on their YouTube page. Um, that, that's her name, um, J-O-N-I, Johnny and Friends. And thanks for listening. We was Cantrell here on Triple Toll Radio. And now, another Answers in Genesis. A finely tuned system. This is Ken Ham, editor of the popular series of books, The Answers Book for Kids. This week, we're looking at designs in the human body that cry out for a designer. Consider your bones. They aren't just keeping you from being a pile of goo on the floor. You see, deep in your bones, brand new blood cells are being created to replace old, dying ones. About 20 trillion red blood cells carry oxygen to every cell in your body. It's a tough job. And each second, two million of them wear out and die. But your bone marrow produces new ones at the rate of two million per second. Incredible. This production is a remarkably well-balanced system. It reminds us our bodies didn't get here by chance. They were created. Get more answers when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. You'll find resources to equip your whole family to defend their faith when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
in the story of the Bible, where should we begin? When God made the whole wide world just by speaking. By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up his sleeve. On day number six, created Adam and Eve. Made in the image of the beautiful Most High. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree do not try. Because in the day you eat it, you're surely going to die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test. And ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. When we read God's word today, the greatest saints had their flaws on full display. And it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used crafts to make a golden calf. Moses got mad, struck the rock with a staff. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs the cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. Often I need elderly saints who feel as though their usefulness in Christ's kingdom is finished up. They see no purpose. Well, as Amy Carmichael grew older and became bedridden, she still viewed herself as a soldier on the front lines. She wrote, quote, no soldier on service is ever laid aside. He is only given another commission, sometimes just to suffer. Never, never is he shelved as of no further use to his beloved captain. To feel so even for a moment is to only exacerbate one's weakness. Boy, do I agree with that. Sitting here in my wheelchair, like Amy, I may be disabled, but I have a ministry. It is a ministry of suffering. And if I can but remain faithful to my captain, oh, what glory I will bring him. Friend, no matter what your age or disability, you are still in commission. So be faithful to where God has called you, even if. It's a wheelchair. Men and women, different? This is Ken Ham encouraging all churches to start their thinking with God's Word. One of the wonders of the human body is God's unique design for men and women. And it goes far beyond the obvious. The average man has 12 points of blood in his body. The average woman has nine. 
A woman's heart beats faster, but a man spouts more blood with each squeeze. Also, women have more white blood cells and produce antibodies faster, helping them avoid illness and to recover faster than men. But men have more red blood cells and clotting factors, healing them from injuries more quickly. And the list goes on. Our culture says that men and women are the same, but God designed men and women differently. Find more answers from God's Word when you go to AnswersRadio.com and discover resources like our streaming platform, Answers TV, to help your family at AnswersRadio.com. We kick it old school. 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 Come on, come on, gonna miss the latest craze. Hit it for a minute, then it's on to the next phase. Easy come, easy go, the markers will hack it. The only change that comes. We 
Kick it old school. God's gift of sleep. This is Ken Ham inviting you to visit the full-size Noah's Ark attraction in northern Kentucky. Did you know your brain never stops working? It's hard at it during the day, but at night, it really ramps up. As you rest, your brain gets to work, processing, organizing, and storing all the information you learn throughout the day. And that's not all. Your brain also gets rid of waste, repairs cells, and moves memories to long-term storage. For children, it produces growth hormones. Yes, 86 billion brain cells are busy communicating with each other to coordinate all this and more. Wow. And you thought you were resting. The activity of rest is another example of God's design. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. Plan your visit to the life-size Noah's Ark at the Ark Encounter when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Bring the whole family to this popular attraction. AnswersRadio.com. Batten down the hatches. It's Ray Comfort at his fiery best. I read my Bible every second day. What? You go 180 days a year without reading God's Word? Others of you are saying, well, I just slip up now and then I'm so busy. Oh, do you like that with your stomach? You say, why, why am I feeling weak? I haven't eaten for three days. Oh, no, isn't it true? Your belly comes before your Bible. All you've got to do is swing it around and say, no Bible, no breakfast, no read, no feed. Be as Job, who said, I esteem the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Thanks, Ray. And if you thought that was pretty aggressive, brace yourself for this quote from Charles Spurgeon. There is dust enough on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your fingers. Ouch. You say, back off, Prince of Preachers. I have a one-year Bible reading program, and I say good on you, seriously. If that works for you, keep it up. But that format, it really doesn't work for everyone. First of all, if reading books isn't your 40, four chapters a day might be just too much. And then there's the, oh, no, I missed today. Now I have to read eight chapters tomorrow. Wait, if I spread it out over four chapters, I missed the four days. Then I'll get caught up by Tuesday. A Bible reading plan like that doesn't work for everyone. Instead, to aid you in your good intentions to faithfully read God's Word, here are some methods that just might get you excited to read your Bible regularly and more. Number one, the concordance approach. This is me limbering up. If you didn't recognize it, this is... yeah. The strongest of James Strong's concordances, it is an assembling of every word in the Bible and every verse that word appears in. This was compiled before we have computers. It's amazing. So you want to read your Bible, think of something, a word that is of interest to you. It's angels. It's miracles. It's whatever word jumps to mind. Every one of those words is listed in this massive tome. You'll need your cheaters to actually be able to read it, but then you go look up the word angel, and it's going to tell you every single verse where angel is found. And then you can go read all about angels. It's okay to bop around your Bible in an orderly way. Number two, the warming up again. The systematic approach, this happens to be a systematic theology. How do we put together categories 
of theologies, pneumatology, epistemology, whatever theology is, how do we know what salvation theology is? Well, you ultimately look at every single verse that talks about that subject. So think of your subject and then go looking for all of the verses. I saw I. definite article as opposed to an indefinite article. Huh. Look at the verb tense. What are the implications of that? Hey, I think I'm going to go look up that word because it seems really unusual. And then you're going to go find the etymology of the word and you can use your concordance again. You can use a lexicon for that. And you focus intensely on one verse and you just keep staring at it, engaging your brain for an extended period of time, and you are going to be shocked at how deep every single Bible verse goes. Method number five, we'll call it the subject approach. You're interested in a particular thing, parenting, anxiety, emotions. Fair enough. Grab that concordance again and go look up all the words related to your subject. So anxiety, you could look up worry. You could look up troubled, anxious, and then go read all of those verses because, well, you're a little anxious right now. Or you could use your Googler machine and ask for comfort verses, and you'll get a slew of them. And then you just go read those comforting verses, and you'll find yourself in the Word, engaging with the Word. And isn't that the way we're supposed to be reading our Bibles? Number six, the need approach. What do you need? Seriously, right now, what do you need? When you go to read your Bible, morning, afternoon, night, whatever your schedule is, which, by the way, detour, if you're not reading your Bible a lot, you miss a day here and there, do you have a plan? Do you have a strategy? Do some reconnaissance on your life. What are your patterns? When do you stay awake? When do you tend to fall asleep? Could you get up earlier? Could you stay up later? Could you cut something out of your life? Maybe not Netflix binging all the time and dedicate a specific time that makes the most sense for you. That'll help you to read your Bible more consistently. What is your need? If you need something, encouragement, I'm lacking assurance. I, I'd like some verses that shore me up. All right, then go look up Bible verses using your concordance, hope. You use a search engine to type in Bible verses on assurance. Read them, study them, and let the Bible fulfill your need. Number seven, the listening approach. For most of the history of the church, and even for ancient Israel, most people didn't know how to read. How did they consume the Word of God? They sat under a teacher that read it out loud to them. Think about Jesus unrolling the scroll of Isaiah and reading it out loud in the temple. So don't feel like you're cheating yourself or God by listening to an audio Bible, because that's how most Christians, before the printing press was invented, would have consumed their Bible. This might help you if you happen to have a reading challenge. You're dyslexic. Your attention span, it's short. Hearing, it is a perfectly acceptable way to, air quote, read your Bible. Furthermore, 
hearing it versus reading it, it's going to hit you differently. So maybe some of the texts that we are, I kind of know the Christmas story. Yeah, I've read the East, but then listen to it. And you might just learn a little something new. Number eight, the MacArthur Study Bible approach. Get yourself a MacArthur Study Bible, probably NASB or ESV are a more formal equivalent rather than a functional kind of loosey-goosey affair. And whatever you do, don't get yourself that massage. It ain't even the Bible at all. The MacArthur Study Bible is loaded with footnotes. So here's my challenge to you. Read every single book in the New Testament, one book at a time, in any order that you choose, at your own pace, but read every single footnote as you go. It's going to take you a bit, but when you're done, here's a promise, and I'm not exaggerating. You'll be smarter than most pastors. I'm not kidding. And it will keep you engaged, and it'll keep you from tripping up on those verses that are hard. Like, what is that about? Well, you're just reading every footnote as you go. And when you're done, I kid you not, you will be a Bible scholar. So there you have it. Eight, perhaps unusual different approaches to reading your Bible, because you don't need to read your Bible a specific way. Read the Bible in a way that ministers to you, educates you, encourages, grows you, and helps you to love Jesus more. Because ain't that the whole point of reading your Bible? God's Word, it is like honey. And perhaps utilizing these strategies will simply help you to consume it more. Now, if you've come across some other tips, some strategies that have helped you live in the Word, please drop them in the comments below. And who knows, you might just encourage another brother or sister in Christ to read their Bibles more. Let's take a quick trip to the Philippines. This might sting a wee bit, but we have a huge opportunity to do something amazing. My name is Kito Espiritu, a professor with the Expositors Academy. In the Philippines, the monthly average income is about $500 a month, making a John MacArthur Study Bible a luxury item for most believers. In contrast, in the United States, you have commercials featuring a Mercedes-Benz in a driveway with a big red ribbon. By sending a MacArthur Study Bible as a gift to your brothers and sisters in TMAI-led churches, you will be giving them a gift more valuable than any luxury car. What do you say? You want to partner with us and the Masters Academy International to send thousands of Bibles to our brothers and sisters in the Philippines. What do you say? How many Bibles could you send? Wretched.org slash Bible. Wretched.org slash Bible. If you love to buy one and get one free, and frankly, who of us doesn't? You'll love our year-end match-giving campaign. Every dollar you give is matched by a very generous gospel partner. Would you please consider becoming a gospel partner right now? That was from Wretches. <laughs> and, um, well... Gonna go out with Nancy and friends, and if you have really, thanks for some trippy tori. Join me next time next Sunday, and bye for now. The B I B L E.
Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.